0: If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Hebrews chapter 12. While we're turning there, you're turning there, and actually I looked because I heard somebody quote the, uh, the page, that, the, the Pew Bible, it's, I think it's 1009, page 1009. Uh, let me just say briefly how honored I am to be here and how much I appreciate your church. I connected with pastors Josh and Stephen, I don't know, maybe six or eight months ago. And they've just become good friends. Um, Hi, Allegra. Uh, So I've been to, yeah, I've been to a lot of fellowships with them and eaten with them and talked about pastoral ministry with them. Your church was one of the first churches to really get behind us and support us. And so you've been an incredibly kind partner to us. So I just want to say thank you. Uh, It's an honor in many ways to be here with you guys this morning. So Hebrews chapter 12, that's where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to be thinking about worship So if I utter the phrase, worship wars, I wonder what comes to your mind, if anything. Worship wars. Perhaps that conjures up images of churches, maybe Baptist churches like this one. That's the context I grew up in as well. uh, Fighting over, you know, choirs or electric guitars, uh, hymns or hill song. And sometimes... Uh, dividing. You know, we laugh, but church is actually splitting over this. So all kinds of drama over this, perhaps sometimes splitting up services. We'll have a modern service and and a traditional service or something like that. So uh, that's the worship wars that we think of. But 500 years ago, the phrase worship war would have meant something entirely different. So I want to begin this morning before we actually read from Hebrews 12 by introducing you to one of my favorite characters from one of my favorite eras of history, the Protestant Reformation. We celebrated its 500-year anniversary last year, 2017. But one of my favorite characters is a young lady from the country of England named Jane Grey. So let me briefly introduce you to Lady Jane Grey, actually named Our middle daughter carries her middle name, Emerson Jane Gray. That's how much I love this uh, figure from history. So let me introduce you to her. In 1553, at the age of 15, Jane Gray was made Queen of England. Do you remember this story? Maybe from television shows or from elementary school or something like that. Fifteen years old, Queen of England. Mary I, who was Jane's cousin and also known as in, you know... Middle school banter, sleepovers, at least where I came from, as Bloody Mary. Uh, Mary I, also known as Bloody Mary, her cousin, really should have been the queen. She really was the rightful heir to the throne. However, a lot of selfish interests of parents and politicians were at play. But at the heart of the issue, and why she became queen, was because Jane Grey, like her cousin Edward VI before her, was a Protestant. Even at 15 years old, she was a committed Protestant and not a Roman Catholic. And at this time in England, whoever had the throne had a lot to say in determining what was the religion of the country. So if a Catholic like Mary was on the throne, England was a Catholic nation. If a Protestant like Jane Grey was on the throne then England, at least for a time, was a Protestant nation. While Protestants had been in rule, so there was lots of politicians in power, they did not want Mary to come back to the throne and take England back to a Catholic nation. So they conjured up this plan and this scheme. Really, it was honestly a little bit dishonest. She was not the rightful heir, but to make her the Queen of England. So Jane Grey, 15 years old, becomes Queen. Mary hears the news from afar. And... She comes storming into London, having gathered a massive army and demands her rightful crown. Well, everyone immediately bows to Mary's wishes because, as I said, she had a very large army behind her and at her disposal. So they obliged to prevent a bloody mess. And just like that, Jane Grey's reign ended after nine days. So she's now known to history as Jane Grey, Lady Jane Grey, the nine-day Queen of England. Mary had her cousin subsequently locked up in the Tower of London where she, Jane Grey, was tried by one of the church's highest authorities on doctrine. Just think of, picture that setting. You've got a a Catholic priest trained in doctrine putting on trial a 15-year-old girl over the Scriptures. Justification by faith. These key issues of the Protestant Reformation. Well, Jane Gray, like others before her and after her, was given by Mary, by the authorities, an opportunity to be freed from the Tower of London to go on with her life. She could, the way that she could be freed was by attending the Catholic Mass, taking publicly, for everybody to see, taking the Mass. So actually sharing in the bread and the the wine uh, representing, according to the Catholic Church, the body blood of Jesus. We'll get to that in a second. As a symbol, if she took it publicly, as a symbol of her repentance. I was wrong. I'm now bowing to the Catholic Church and to the throne. She could take the mass and then go potentially free. The queen could forgive her and let her go. Jane's father-in-law, side note, had taken up. He was too locked up with Jane Grey in the Tower of London. He was taken, given that same opportunity, and he took it. So Jane Grey watched her father-in-law from the window of the Tower of London and she recorded in her journal as he stormed off to take the mass publicly, God, please help me not to be a coward like that man. So Jane was given the opportunity, 15 or this time perhaps 16 years old, and she refused. Why? Well, because as she understood it and as Protestants since have understood it, To take the Mass would be to dishonor Jesus. Because it was believed that the bread and the wine were literally transformed into Jesus' literal, physical, actual body and blood. Which Mary and all Protestants since have understood as a gross misunderstanding of the Scripture. And indeed something that confuses the very Gospel. Mary offered the pardon to her cousin, take the bread and live... Jane refused. And so they took this 15 or 16-year-old girl to the execution block. They had her tied down and blindfolded. So if you look up online this afternoon, Jane Gray, you'll find one prominent picture of her. It's her at the execution block, and she's got a blindfold on. Because that's what they did. They blindfolded her. She kneeled into the block and before a gathered crowd for this spectacle. And after she recited Psalm 51 confessing her sins to God, they took this teenager's head. 16th century worship wars could cost you your life. Brings a whole new meaning to what we think of, doesn't it, when we think of worship wars. And however that sounds to your ears, however horrifying that sounds to you or not, this was how seriously they took approaching God. I'm not defending the practice, but I'm saying, If we can learn one thing from them, it was a very serious matter to approach the living God. So today, you guessed it, we're going to be thinking together about worship. And without further ado, I'm going to read now from Hebrews chapter 12. We're just going to look at two verses which come from the end of this great letter called Hebrews. And I'm going to read for us verses 28 and 29. Have you ever wondered what makes worship, what makes our worship pleasing to God? What makes it potentially, on the other hand, displeasing to God? Let's go to answers for to Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, the writer says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Those two jam-packed verses we're going to meditate on for the rest of our time here this morning. They come, as you can see, at the end of this great epistle. This is the climax of this entire letter, which for 12 chapters now, I realize I'm just kind of peeking in from Ashburn, and we're just kind of peeking in together at Hebrews chapter 12. So we've got no context, but here's basically what's happened for 12 chapters. The author of Hebrews is given a running sermon On how much better the new covenant, what we call the gospel, how much better that is than the old covenant. It speaks a better word, he says. It has better sacrifices, not lambs and bulls, but the son of God. It's got a better priesthood, not Aaron and his sons, but Jesus, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, he says. It's a better salvation. That's the point. The old covenant is so much less than, he's saying, the new covenant. And the word he keeps saying again and again and again is better, better, better. And now we come to the end of this great letter. And he sort of comes up, the author sort of comes up for a breath and says, okay, in light of how much better all of this is, the gospel, the new covenant, how much better this is, let's talk about how to respond to that. So two ways to respond We as Christians ought to respond to the new covenant in light of how superior it is to what was here before. Are you ready? So two points, two ways to respond. These are our points for this morning, if you're a note taker, for how we who live under the new covenant are to respond to it. Number one, let us give thanks. First, the author says, Let us give thanks. Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful. Let us be filled with thanksgiving is the idea. Why? For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God's people, having now received the blessings of the new covenant, are to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, I can get excited about being thankful to God for many things, but one prerequisite for me giving thanks and probably for you as well is i got to understand what I'm supposed to be giving thanks for. And I don't know about you, but when I read that phrase, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that sounds like it'll preach, but what in the world is he talking about? What is this kingdom that cannot be shaken that we're to respond with thanksgiving? Well, to explain it, let me tell you just briefly, as you'll see on the screen, I see about two mountains and this kingdom that cannot be shaken. In the verses just before ours the author of Hebrews takes us by the hand, if you will, and sort of transports us to these two different mountains that are really 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 significant mountains in the history of the Bible and the history of God's working with his people. So I want to I want to do what the author does with you now. I want to take you by the hand figuratively and transport you to these two mountains so we can see what the author of Hebrews wants us to see. So I don't know what it takes for you to stoke your imagination. Maybe you need to close your eyes. Maybe you need to hold your spouse's hand or something like that. But let's go together with the author of Hebrews to these two mountains. First, he takes us to the base of the great Mount Sinai, where God gave the law to Moses and to all of Israel. Do you remember that? Exodus, and really all the first five books of the Bible. uh, This is prominent in there. God gives the law at Mount Sinai. When you think Mount Sinai, you ought to think law. Moses, the Ten Commandments, and all the rest. That's Mount Sinai. And this represents the Old Covenant. All right, so we're going to go into some symbolism here because that's where Hebrews takes us. But Mountain One, Sinai, Moses, Law, Old Covenant. You with me? So what is the setting of this mountain? He sets the scene for us in verses 18 to 24. We're not going to read them, but just imagine you're there. Well, first it's dark and gloomy outside because there's a terrifying storm at hand. The only brightness you can see is coming from fires that are breaking out on the mountain. So sparks and flames are flaring up on this mountain. There's a loud trumpet that's occasionally piercing through the rest of this carnage on this mountain. It's not a happy trumpet. It's a terrifying trumpet. It's like it's announcing doom. You're there with the people of Israel who are far off. Why? Because they're scared to death to go any closer. Because they know that might equal, their approaching this mountain, might equal their death. So you're standing afar from this mountain. Moses alone, you can just barely see off in the distance, is on the mountain. And there he's receiving instructions from God. And he's reporting back to the people what God is saying so that they then beg him not to say another word because they're so terrified by what he says. You got it? You got this picture of this first mountain? Way off in the distance, you can see that Moses, even as he dutifully receives what God reveals, is himself shaking. Trembling in fear. This is the first mountain. This is the mountain from the Bible's horror story, as Hebrews sees it, the mountain of the law. So that's mountain one, but then Hebrews quickly takes us, transports us by the hand to a second mountain over here. And this one he brings us to, brings us to the present day. It's the second mountain. It's not Mount Sinai, it is rather the great Mount Zion. This is the mountain where God lives. This is the Bible's picture of heaven. And this second mountain represents not the old covenant, but the new covenant. Not the law that Moses gave, but the gospel that Jesus brings. You with me? So mountain one, Sinai, Moses, law, scary, fearful. Mountain two, Zion, heaven, the new covenant, the gospel. So what's this one like? What's the scenery here? Well, the second mountain is bright, not because of outbreaks of fire like the first mountain, but because it's covered by more angels than you could even begin to count. We're gathered together here. The angels are gathered together here to share a feast. Nobody's standing far off at a distance from this mountain because nobody's scared. Just the opposite, in fact. There's laughter and joy because we read there's a massive feastal celebration that's about to take place. The angels aren't alone at this feast. The church is there. Hebrews calls the church here the assembly of the firstborn. And they've joined together with all the saints of old, all those who by faith have obeyed God. That's who Everybody that Hebrews mentions in Hebrews chapter 11, you know that great chapter, the so-called Hall of Faith, and this one by faith, and this one by faith. They're all there at this mountain. And lastly, Jesus is there. And you don't hear him speaking here according to Hebrews, but you can see even from a distance that his blood is sprinkled upon everything so that everything on this second mountain is clean. Washed in the blood of Christ. This second mountain is God's mountain, and it's the mountain of grace or of the gospel. So there you go. You with me with these two basic pictures the mountain of the law, Mount Sinai, and the mountain of grace or the new covenant, that is Mount Zion. Two great mountains, and one more piece we've got to pick up here so that we can understand what the author is telling us and then obey him by being thankful. What about this whole matter of shaking? So two mountains, we've got that. What about this kingdom that cannot be shaken? Well, Hebrews, again, earlier, we didn't read it, but Hebrews tells us about these two mountains, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the law, the law and grace or the gospel. And then it quotes this old prophecy from Haggai. Have you ever heard a sermon from Haggai? Stephen probably has preached from Haggai in this church. <laughs> obscure little book, right, to most of us. But Hebrews quotes an old prophecy from Haggai where God said that he would one day shake the earth. One final climactic time, God would shake the entire earth and remove everything that's evil. So it's like Haggai in this prophecy imagines the world as a sort of, you know, those snow globes you get in the antique stores or in Cracker Barrel or something like that, where you can shake them up and all this white stuff pops up into the Interior of this snow globe. Only in Hebrews' vision, in Haggai's prophecy, when God shakes this snow globe up, which is the earth, and the snow slowly starts to go back down to the ground in this globe, so you can see what's left, a lot of stuff's disappeared. A lot of stuff's gone, and it's gone forever. So, what's gone? Everything evil has been removed. Everything impure and unclean has been removed. So in this prophecy, God severely shakes the earth. Everything's gone. All that remains is, guess what? That second mountain. Zion. All that remains is the kingdom of God. You Remember the parable of the, uh, the kingdom and the mustard seed? You got this little bitty mustard seed and... Eventually, Jesus says, it grows so large that its branches cover the entire earth. Hebrews is seeing that's now happened in this vision. He quotes Haggai to say, the kingdom of God, the mountain of God, it's now overtaken everything. It's all that remains on the earth. So what is this kingdom that cannot be shaken in summary? It's God's place, Mount Zion, where God rules Over all God's people. And where finally, once and for all, nothing threatens that. Nothing can undo that. Nothing opposes that. Now, all that background to say Hebrews is telling you that if you're a Christian, you've received that already. Isn't that reason enough? Receiving this mountain of God's grace. Receiving hope for a world and a life purged once and for all of evil. Isn't that enough to live a life of gratitude? Under Sinai, think about it. Under the first mountain, you had to work your way to heaven. And the Bible story again and again and again and again is that nobody could do it. It's like a mountain that you had to climb to get to God physically. There's fire and thunder everywhere. It's impossible. Nobody could do it. But then comes this second Mountain And under Mount Zion, Christ works on our behalf. And by faith, we receive his rewards. It's like he climbs, he scales this awful mountain for us, and we just go on his back. We receive all that he's earned. So if if you're a non-Christian here with us this morning, if I could just briefly speak to you directly. Incredibly glad you're here. I don't know anybody from anybody here, so you could all not be non-Christians. You could all be non-Christians. I don't have to worry about offending anybody, right? If you're a non-Christian here with us this morning, the Bible basically presents you with two options for how to get to heaven. You can try that first mountain. You can try to please God and earn heaven by your own works, by your own sweat, by your own effort. You can bank on your being a good person, or if not a great person, at least you're better than Hitler. Fill in the blank with somebody that will make you feel better about yourself. But the Bible's so clear, you can never make it to heaven in that way. Nobody can sweat their way to heaven. Nobody can work their way to heaven. So you can have that first mountain, but the Bible also presents you with this other alternative. You can have Mount Zion by repenting of your sins. That is turning away from a life of rebellion against God and trusting by faith in Christ and in him alone. He performs for you. You don't have to sweat because Christ didn't only sweat. He bled for you. He died on a cross for your sins. We've sung of that already all morning, wondrously. And then he rose again from the dead, victoriously over death, earning heaven. And so all who attach themselves to Jesus by faith, not by works, but by faith, can be carried along by Jesus, this, the hope of the second mountain, to God. So if you're a non-Christian, repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. That's the same hope we all share. And you can do that now. And, and, and if you're a Christian, again, just to return to this first point, we of all people ought to be the most thankful in all the world. Who in all the earth has more reason to be thankful than Christians? Think about it. There are two primary alternatives, two things in the story of the Bible, especially in the story of Israel. we we'll see this again and again and again. There are two primary things that keep us from thanksgiving. Just briefly, number one, forgetfulness. Why don't we thank God? Because we forget him. It's as shocking as you read the story of Israel. Uh, if you're, you don't have to turn there, but if you're new to the Bible, uh, much of the book is concerned with this people that God was uniquely working with a long time ago called Israel. And so we read in a book like Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 9, God telling Israel after he rescues them and as he's rescuing them, God tells these people, take care. And keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Why in the world is the God of the universe who just rescued these people from slavery and an awful life telling them not to forget him? Think about how, how could they forget him? That'd be like me, you know, meeting the president or something like that and him saying, you know, spending some time with me and him saying to me, hey, Matt, don't forget me. Okay. How could I? This is the God of the universe has rescued them from an awful life. And he's saying, don't forget me. Why is he saying that? Well, fast forward to the end of Deuteronomy, the same book. The story goes on. Listen to what God says to his people again. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Why was he telling him that? Because he knew they would forget him. And so we all, apart from God's spirit and apart from a discipline, sustained discipline of thanksgiving, we're all inclined. Let this fear you. We're all inclined and bent towards forgetting God, even after we've been rescued. How easy it is. Let this be a warning to all of us. How easy it is for sinful humans like us to forget the living God. To beg God for Rescue. God, I have no hope apart from you. Please save me. And then to be saved and turn around and forget God and slowly start to think, I'm a little bit better than other people. I've earned this. I deserve this. To be stuck in an awful rut in life, even as a Christian, like, God, you've got to get me out of this pit because I see no hope here. I can't get myself out of this one. And to be rescued from that pit, whatever it is, And then to turn right around and forget and slowly start to think, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Personally, to move to a place like Northern Virginia, trying to do something absolutely crazy like start a church, to have nothing and nobody on your team but your wife who is literally obliged by covenant for God to join your church. And that's all you got. (laughs) And to think, how in the world are we going to do this? And then slowly start to see God work and build and provide people and resources and everything else. And then just as quickly start to turn around and think, I guess I'm pretty good at this. I can do this. How easily we forget God. And part of the way you combat that is by thanksgiving. Thanklessness, not living a life of Thankfulness to God is a close cousin to atheism. And thankfulness is always a friend of faith, a close ally. One other way we tend to forget God, just briefly, this often comes after forgetting God, is we grumble. Again, the story of Israel. They forgot God, and then they grumbled against him. Israel's enslaved at the hand of the Egyptians. They're being beaten by them. God wondrously rescues them, leads them into the forest. How are they going to eat? They're hungry. They say, God, what are we going to eat? All of a sudden, this food literally shows up on the ground nobody's ever seen before. They look at it, and they say, what is that? Which translates into Hebrew as manna. So they start eating this thing that God crafted from heaven called manna, and what do they do? They eat it for a few days and then they turn, turn their finger back to God. The food was better in Egypt. It would have been better. It would be, be better for us to be slaves again in Egypt. How quickly forgetfulness can lead to grumbling. How quickly A rescued people can become an entitled people. That's the danger of security and of comfort and of wealth. And let this be a particular warning to us who live in Loudoun County. How easy it would be to forget God in Loudoun County. Even in the midst of really busy religious activity. And, And again, just to encourage you positively. Part of, as Hebrews is giving to us, part of the way we combat that inclination in all of us to forget and then grumble Is through the sustained practice individually and corporately of thanksgiving. That's why it's so fitting, as we've already done this morning in prayer, to to thank God repeatedly in specific ways, to sing songs that express our thanksgiving to God. This is part of how we combat our inclination to forget God and to then grumble against Him. Don't be a sour Christian. Do not be a sour Christian with a critical spirit. That is not disconnected from your discipleship of Jesus. From your fight to make it to heaven by faith. Thankfulness will carry you on to heaven by faith. I'm not saying you earn heaven by thanksgiving. I'm just saying thanksgiving is clearly a symptom of the redeemed. Of a faithful heart. Forgetfulness and grumbling will leave you in grave danger. Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Number two. So second point this morning. Second way, the author of Hebrews invites us to respond to this glorious new covenant. First, let us give thanks. Secondly, we'll conclude here. Let us worship. Second response of God's people to receiving this wonderful new covenant is let us worship. And thus, the author says, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Now, what I want to do here to explain this final point in this final verse is I want to take you all to a scene. Perhaps it's a very familiar scene to most of you, if not all of you, perhaps not. But I want to take you to a scene, not to mountains this time, but to Sunday noon or 1230 after church. You load up kids or your friends or whoever in the minivan. You go a little bit over the speed limit because the pastor preached a little long this morning and you're hungry and your kids usually eat a little bit earlier than this. And a question is presented to the car. And the question goes something like this. How was worship today? I want to camp out in this minivan scene after Sunday morning worship where that question is asked, how was worship today? I want to dissect it for just a bit because I think if we can get what I want to show you here. We're ready to understand this final verse this morning from Hebrews chapter 12. So America, 2018, how was worship today? What's behind that question? Well, first, it'd probably be helpful to define some terms. If you or I ask that question, or if you hear that question asked you, how was worship today? What do you think the person asking that question is talking about? Probably music. There's a good chance they're talking about music, right? No, I'm not going to go like deep into the weeds here. But there are multiple problems with this statement, this question, this scene, which I want to address here. But let me begin with the obvious. The Bible never limits worship to music. And so neither should we. The Bible doesn't talk about worship exclusively in that way. The Bible defines worship as the redeemed person's entire life of response to God and to his salvation. It's a new heart given by God's spirits, new activity and response in love and gratitude and in service to God. That certainly entails how we sing. Music does matter to God. But it also entails how we pray, how we work, how we eat even. First Corinthians ten thirty one: whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So worship is the entire life of the redeemed in response to God. But then it especially encapsulates how we approach God together when we gather together like we are this morning for church. So how was worship this morning? First problem with that is if we're talking only about music, that is not how the Bible talks about worship. You with me? All right, let's press further. I want to, I'm not pinching. Again, I don't know any of you, so I'm not pinching or prodding anyone. All of us. I want to pinch everybody, right? So two rude awakenings for us. I'm thinking of American Evangelicals 2018 with that question, how was worship today? Number one, rude awakening number one. Just who gets to answer that question? Think about it. What do we mean when we ask that question? Probably something like, if we're honest, was the music, uh, was how we talk to God, was the service pleasing to m- who? Me. Was it pleasing to me? Did it make me feel good? Did I connect with The style of music. Did I connect with the sermon? Did I have some experience that I had elsewhere a long time ago that made me feel really close to God? Did it replay that? All right, stop. The living God who we've all defied, like our father Adam, has not only allowed us, but has made a good wonderful way for us to approach him and only mind you how by killing his very son we can only approach the living God through the blood of his son the living God has allowed us to do what is otherwise unthinkable that is to approach him without dying Even more, by his grace, we can now approach him in such a way that is pleasing to him. Paul says our worship is a pleasing aroma to God's nostrils. We're going to turn around to God in light of that and ask, was it pleasing to you and to me? How dare we? Are, are, Are you capturing the total inversion that we're capable of, all of us, myself included, with how we even talk about approaching God and think about it? We don't get to answer that question. That's not ours to answer how was worship today. Only God can rightly answer how was worship today because only God determines whether or not it was pleasing or not. Are you with me? Only God can determine that. And apart from the cross of Christ, him answering that question is a terrifying prospect. Second root awakening. How was worship today? Second root awakening. Come to find out God does answer that question at least in a sense. And that's what I want to show you from verse 28. So look back at it with me if you are. We'll finish here in just a moment. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. Our worship, as it turns out, is evaluated by God. Think about that. And judge to be either acceptable and pleasing Or unacceptable and displeasing. Notice that the term acceptable worship implies clearly that there is such a thing as unacceptable worship. Now that changes things, doesn't it? It makes it very much of our interest to figure out just exactly what kind of worship. And again, I'm not just talking about music, I'm talking about how we respond to and approach the living God. makes it very important for each of us to find out just exactly what kind of worship God does accept. And praise be to God, he doesn't leave us in the dark. He answers it for us. We go on, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. I think in the flow of Hebrews, which you're just getting a brief taste of this morning, I think in the flow of Hebrews, this is almost like a shocking twist at the end that nobody saw coming. Everything up to this point in Hebrews is, this is new. Christ is new. The priesthood is new. The sacrifice is new. And it's better. It's new. And it's better. It's new. It's new. It's better. It's better. It's new. It's new. It's better. And then we come to the very end of the letter. And the author tells us that come to find out there's just one thing that hasn't changed at all. There's one thing that's as old as Adam and even before Adam and it's not at all new and that is our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. The author here is perhaps reflecting upon Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 23 and 24 where we read, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. From the beginning, fire in the Bible becomes a symbol for God's holiness. Here in Deuteronomy, it's if you defy him, if you make an unpleasing image and worship that, fire could consume you. Moses, think Moses at the burning bush. Take off your sandals for the ground upon which you are standing is holy ground. Fire in the Bible represents God's blazing holiness. That's his Moral purity, he's never sinned. There's nothing unclean in God, but it's also more than that. It's his radical otherness. He's not like us. He's not a bigger, better version of us. He's in a category all of his own. He is holy, and that's represented by fire. The only way to approach that God, Hebrews is saying, the consuming fire God, ever, the only way to approach him ever is with reverence and awe. That never changes. Now, time does not permit for us to tease out all the implications of what it means to approach God with reverence and all. So forgive me for just a few insufficient comments, but let me just say a couple things here. First, it all starts with humbling ourselves before God, acknowledging that he is above us and he does have the right to judge what is acceptable and what isn't. One of the things that massively concerns us about our present scene, I'm not talking about here, I don't know you guys, I'm talking about our scene as Americans, Evangelicals 2018, is we we act like and we talk like God has no right to, you know, it's just about my heart, you know. As long as I'm sincere, God could never judge that to be unacceptable. Where do we get that idea from? There is acceptable worship and there's unacceptable worship. Let us humble ourselves before the living God and let him define his own terms and judge what he will. Second, it means we pay careful attention to the Bible. Some of us would be shocked to find out that even when it comes to matters of the church, even what we do when we gather on Sunday mornings, God actually says a lot about that in the Bible. We have to listen to that. God does speak to that third if I could just give a little more commentary on our own scene which I'm already picking at quite a bit I want to pick at a little bit more if I could be so bold it means we may need to seriously consider some of our assumptions it seems what we tend to value as the height of spirituality today 2018 churches in America is casualness and spontaneity what is pure worship before God was well, going to be really casual and it's going to be really and you know, it's probably going to be spontaneous there can't be any forethought into it, right? Again, where in the world did we get those ideas? We've replaced, let us approach God in an acceptable way with casualness and spontaneity. The Bible does not say that. It says reverence and awe. Those are very different sorts of terms. We've got to let the Bible rule over us in this way. I'm not calling, I want to be clear, I'm not calling for suits and ties. I'm not calling for these and thous. I'm not calling for hymns and out with the modern. No, this cuts so much deeper than all that. It speaks to everything, but it cuts deeper than that. I'm calling for humble submission and a biblical fear that causes us to even think to ask the question what does the Bible say about how we approach God? So I want to finish tonight or this morning by putting a highlighter on a phrase that we've already read twice but which I haven't given any comment to. And it comes in verse 22, not in our passage, but uh, the outset of our passage, the context we've already considered. Verse 22, if you want to look back down there, we'll close here. But you have come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels, and feastal gathering. Israel came to the mountain of Sinai and the church, as Hebrews sees it, and that includes you, us, this morning, if you're a Christian, has come to Mount Zion. That is heaven. As Hebrews sees it, you're there. You're going to live billions of years somewhere. All of you. Every, think about that. Every single person in this room is going to live billions and billions and billions of years. You have an, a soul in you that cannot die. It can be tortured or live in bliss, but it cannot die. You're going to live billions and billions of years somewhere. And you have, not the youngest of you in here to the oldest in here, you have just a few more decades, if even here, and then billions of millennia on the other side. I saw the slide before the sermon began of Ann Fraser. Is Ann here this morning? Okay, I assume not. Hundred years old celebration? Are you kidding me? Hundred years on this earth. I bet you, if you ask Miss Anne, I don't know, I've never met her. She looked incredibly sweet in the picture. I bet you, even if you ask Miss Anne, she would tell you it's flown by. Just like that, a few decades here, several decades at best, and then billions of years on the other side. Just doing the math, your life and what's left of it on this earth, my life, what's left of it on this earth, is a speck in comparison to what awaits. And what's more, in Christ, Hebrews is saying, you've already come to eternity. Abraham is just on the other side. Angels are celebrating and feasting just on the other side. As the picture comes, you can almost touch it. Hebrews' message simply is to make it. I don't know if you like Lord of the Rings. I love Lord of the Rings. Same Do you remember him? Frodo's faithful pal. He's not the main character, but he's every time Frodo's about to give up, about to quit, about to put on the ring, about to throw himself into the fire, whatever. Sam's there, no, 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 Master Frodo, don't do it, don't do it. That's what Hebrews is to the Christian. It's that companion to come alongside you and just say, no, don't give up, don't give in. It, it might hurt, just hang on. There's a lot waiting on the other side. Abraham's cheering you on. Jesus' blood covers your passageway. God is waiting, hang on, Hebrews says. And we do that by thanksgiving, thanksgiving, And by worship. Let's pray. God we want to respond to your word. Even as you've commanded us to this morning. By giving thanks. And so we pause even just for a moment now. To thank you for the many, many, many rich blessings we've received in Christ. As we've sung this morning of his righteousness. Earned on our behalf. Of the penalty he paid for our sins of his victorious resurrection, earning new life and resurrection life for us. God, we have so much to be thankful for. We deserve death and an end immediately for all our sins. And you've given us life and life abundantly and so much more. So we give you thanks, God. Make us a more thankful people, we pray. And God, we worship you. We humble ourselves before you and express our great adoration and fear of you as the living God, the one who judges the living and the dead. And we pray for the rest of our lives you would make us more pleasing of an aroma and more acceptable in your sight. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we join in singing.